0: All right. As the panel gathers, I'm going to change the pace a bit and ask a few questions of the audience. I want to reassure you these are easy questions. They're primarily designed to ensure that you're paying close attention to the panel that's about to follow. So there's just going to be two questions. I want you to listen very carefully. First question, IMO 2020. Yes. IMO 2020, and you're you're going to have a yay or nay answer. IMO 2020 is projected to reduce premature mortality by fewer than 10,000 lives per year or greater than 10,000 lives per year? Nicholas, you're supposed to help me count. Those of you who think that IMO will save fewer than 10,000 lives per year, raise your hand. Uh, I'm guessing 10. There's someone back there who raised their hand, I think 15. Those who think more than 10,000 per year? I think they counted a bit. Very good. The estimates are between 40 and 60,000 lives per year will be saved as a result of the reduced sulfur emissions uh, uh, requirements that will go into effect on January 1st. Your second question, ladies and gentlemen, I'm encouraged that the majority of you appeared to get that question correct. Does shipping account for less than 10% of global emissions or more than 10% of global CO2 emissions. Those of you who think it accounts for more than 10%, please raise your hand. Oh, come on. If you're going to raise your hand, you've got to raise your hand. Don't, don't be shy about it. Don't be shy about it. All right. Those of you who think it accounts for less than 10%. Very good. There are many who don't know the answer to the question. I'm encouraged. I'm encouraged by that. We all have an opportunity to learn. The answer is between 3 and 4%. With that as a starting point, I have a great opportunity to talk, to have a, a, this, uh, the, the crude tanker panel, and we'll have a chance to have a good discussion about the, the key developments in that market and, and, and uh, how the decision makers are are anticipating change. In front of you, you have the owners of approximately 200 ships and the collective experience of centuries? No, that's probably more than I want to go. But but so so you can ask them, we'll uh, we'll ask them a few tough questions and and, and a few easier ones and and we'll see where the conversation goes. Hugo De Hugo, welcome, thank you very much. Jeff Prybor, Bob Burke. And Paul, you're here as a a, 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 a quick substitute. Thank you so much for making time today.
1: My pleasure. I'm sorry, I don't have any ships, but (laughs) pleased to be here.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Very good. Fair enough. Fair enough. Let's start with ESG. Um, We have uh, heard earlier, just before it was announced, that the building was burning down, that the banking industry, amongst others, is beginning introducing policies uh, called the Poseidon principles which will encourage lending to ships or will encourage banks reporting their carbon intensities of their portfolios some of the bankers responsible for the Poseidon principles have said it will be get more difficult to finance existing ships as a result Um, Bob what's your thoughts on that?
2: Um, Thank you first of all you know, I, I like new ships, I like new cars, I like a new suit, you know, I like new buildings. This one happens to be old. Um, but while we're having audience participation period, um, how many people here have been in an airplane this year? An airplane or a rail car? Okay. How many people have asked before they bought the ticket or afterwards how old that car wa- that rail car was or that airplane? Anybody? No. Any in the back? No. Um, so I think it's interesting that... We're happy to strap ourselves into a tube of steel with our family and get launched into space at 550 miles an hour on an asset that could be 28, 29 years old. And no one seems to think twice about it. Rail cars retire at the age of 40, airplanes at 29. Ships somehow or other were obsolete at 15. So I started to think about this. Has anyone seen the definitive study on the environmental life cycle of a ship? Anyone? I've looked for it. I can't find it. Um, It must be out there somewhere because we decided that 20 years is the life of a ship, at least the life of a tanker. It takes a lot of energy to make 40,000 tons of steel. It takes a lot of energy to melt down 40,000 tons of steel. So I think someone, maybe in this room or somewhere, should go out and find out what that environmental impact is. I mean, emissions are a very important subject, as we just discussed. They really are. But the fact of the matter is we can't renew the whole world tomorrow. So we have to be able to deal with the assets we have and find out exactly what the economic life is and the environmental life is. We can't have everything new right away. What about a ten-year cycle? That would be cool. How about five years? How about single-purpose ships, like single-purpose plastic? I mean, that would work, but it doesn't. You know, we tell our kids, don't just throw stuff away. Use it as long as you can because that's the most environmentally friendly thing to do. You know, if we want to work on scrapping, then we should take care of our ships so they're 25. And guess what? 25% of the scrapping problem would just go away overnight. Mm. That'd be nice. I mean, it's a lot of work to scrap a ship. It takes over a year to scrap a VL. And 40,000 tons of steel takes a lot of energy to make. So I started thinking about where this 20 years come from. I don't know. And we hire a bunch of um, engineers or our classification societies. And I would think they're the ones who decide how long the asset should live. Before Open 90, they went 25, 30 years because that was the life they were built for. In Open 90, there was a a, a compromise that we would shorten the lives of the ships to bring in second hulls faster than they would ordinarily be in their economic life cycle. And people groaned about that, but we did it. And then 20 years seemed to feel like a nice number. Um, What disappoints me is I hear brokers, lawyers, bankers, (laughs) charterers, a lot of people that have never been on a ship or have never sailed on a ship refer to 15-year-old ships as rust buckets, but they're not. I've been on a lot of them. I brought a couple of bankers out to an 18-year-old VLCC recently, and it's in great shape. We happened to buy it from my friend down here on the left, who took good care of it for a long period of time. And they were amazed that they were going to scrap this asset in, in 24 months. So financing may be difficult, maybe the price changes, but there's an equity play there, and there's a, pl- there's a place for them in the market. Twenty-five percent of the tankers, at least the, on the Suez, and almost the Vs are over 15 years old, so they're an important place in in, in the transportation cycle. Um, They do burn more fuel, but then they go on shorter routes or they steam slower. There are improvements to be made. The other issue is, um, and I won't take up all the time, just a little more. Um, The other issue is um, if you force a retirement of any asset at at a given date and don't encourage the owners to invest in the optionality of a longer life, then inherently, they will not be as well maintained as they would if they had an opportunity to go longer. We all do it with our own cars. Uh, The other issue is if you compress the cycle to 20 years without the ability for 25 years or longer, then the economic cycles will be more violent in the industry. So by limiting the age to 20 years, I think um, it seems somewhat arbitrary. Unless, and I'm serious, unless someone else knows exactly why 20 seems to be a magic number. And now 15 is even a more magic number. Um, Maybe the banks don't want to finance it, but equity certainly does. And um, from a financial point of view, I know over the last cycle we've made at least as much money as everybody else uh, with the lower capital costs. So the lower capital costs has helped our investors, and we don't really need any leverage when when the assets are that cheap and the cycle is that strong. So,
0: So, Bob, the, the Poseidon principles, I think, are about carbon emissions rather than age. Uh, there are certainly bank policies about age out there. They, I don't think they've changed so much. It's, it's the new sensitivity to carbon. Do you see these, these Poseidon principles and carbon uh, metrics as
2: particularly targeting
0: older ships?
3: Well,
2: they seem to, but I'm not an expert on the principles. But it would also seem to me that you should take into, effect, into account the environmental life cycle. Like I said, 40,000 tons of steel is a lot of steel. Everyone wants people to scrap things in the European fashion. In Europe, I think we remelt the steel. I think the Indians re-roll 90% of it. That's a whole different issue, which is a lot more efficient. But it's more than just carbon emissions from the stack. It's carbon emissions from the entire life cycle, like it should be on the electric cars and everything else we use. I didn't ask you a question, I know. <laughs> I wasn't planning on it. What was the,
0: <laughs> <laughs> the passion comes through. I think that, that's the important part. So, so, so Bob tells us that uh, decarbonization is, is a significant issue to talk about, significant for the, for the industry. Uh, Hugo, how do you talk about it with your stakeholders? What does it uh, mean for you
4: Well, I think that we have, I mean, the conversation has uh, completely shifted uh, in the last 18 months. Uh, I think nobody can ignore uh, now the fact that everybody is talking about it, and uh, to a certain extent, you know, IMO 2020 seems to be an old story. Everybody is already talking about IMO 2050 and what it means for 10 years from now, 20 years from now, uh, and how we are going to get there? A lot of people are are still very, very skeptical. Um, You know, I can't disagree with what uh, Bob said, Uh, unfortunately, I can't disagree with you. I think that people are looking at the space and not looking broader to, you know, from what we call uh, way to well, or well to wake, sorry. Uh, But we are all in the hands of the regulators. I think that uh, some of us have tried to influence the rules uh, for other issues and we're not very successful. Um, so, at some point in time, you have to play within the market that is given to you, it's given to you by the regulator. Uh, I wouldn't disagree and I would not uh, hold a different speech, but from an economic point of view, we have some rules and we'll have to uh, apply them. I think that as far as uh, EUNAP is concerned, I think that we embrace the regulation, we think uh, it's very good, um, it could be better, of course. Uh, But in terms of uh, uh, the reduction of the CO2, I think it's very important for for everyone uh, to start focusing on that. And as far as EuroNav is concerned, we've started publishing um, our emissions uh, in our annual report of this year. We are very happy to say that year on year, from 17 to 18, we have had a a 10% reduction in CO2. That was obviously because we bought a very modern fleet, so a fleet that had been recently built, but at least it was on the water. Uh, and, of course, those ships were more economical uh, in terms of their consumption, and therefore they were emitting far less CO2. Transparency is very important. I think that if everybody would start reporting, uh, it would be great. I mean, just to uh, um, take your example of whether you ask when you board a plane whether it's old or not, I think it would be equally important when you start boarding a plane, what is your carbon footprint going to be on that journey, Mm. at least knowing it.
0: So, so, Hugo, you know the, the next uh, question now. So you saved 10% on your carbon last year. What are you doing this year?
4: Well, we have, uh, we have, we have initiated a program this year uh, of really eliminating well, all the waste. And God knows that there is a lot of waste in energy uh, in the way the, the, the industry is performing. Uh, as a matter of fact, I was visiting a ship last week uh, and I was talking to the captain, and I was amazed by how much waste there is in terms of energy because we arrived in the port, we had a lay can, and then they told us, oh, you know what, um, sorry, there's congestion, so next slot is in 10 days from now. We could have reduced our speed and arrived plenty of time for that lay can mm. or for a new lay can that would have been communicated to us, uh, and we would have saved a lot of energy. I mean, the same goes for the boilers, we're supposed to run uh, the pumps, and they're supposed to be started two or three hours in advance and we were given the instructions to start them and it was only 10 hours later that we started using them. Again, a big waste. Um, in terms of the technology that you can apply nowadays, it's amazing that with a couple of sensors uh, and, and a pretty good piece of software coupled with this hardware, you can save a lot of energy on a daily basis. You can save one ton here, one ton there, but at the end of the year, especially when you have a large fleet, it means that um, you're going to save a lot of of fuel that you would have otherwise consumed and therefore limit your CO2 emissions. So I think that it's time to cooperate. It's time to cooperate uh, with our clients. It's time to, to cooperate with ports, authorities and to be more efficient and more focused on where can we not waste all that energy. And that's what we are uh, trying to do this year.
0: Does that waste saving
4: waste energy, does that give you anything like 10%? 10% is a, is a big ambition. I don't think that you can achieve that in one year. Uh, however, um, we have good reason to believe that 10% within a couple of years could be there. Because I mean, I can't tell you, I can't repeat myself uh, how much waste there is. Hmm. And I, I suppose that we, we all agree on this. If, if the industry is not uh, there to focus
3: on, on wasting mess. Yeah, agree. Can I, can I jump in, Aron? Please. I think it's interesting that you started out with a broad... Of let's talk about ESG and then we've, you and Bob have gone into a deep dive on just one element of it, which is an important one very important one carbon emissions and the Poseidon principle is just one initiative to deal with carbon emissions of, as Hugo said it's the regulations it's everything but to go back to the bigger picture you know ESG is something that's changed a lot in the last 18 months to focus on ESG and it goes way beyond just any any one uh, uh, concept like carbon emissions so it, that's why we've embraced the concept and made it part of our our, our charter we we put it into the, our 10K that these principles are important to us. But your story, Hugo, I, I, it brings to mind something similar. In our, our company, we've started an initiative too to count the, the carbon emissions. Uh, it's called, it, it's technically, we call it Get to Green. That's what we say to our, our seafarers. Hmm. But it ties into ESG in a broader way because beyond just eliminating waste, which is definitely one of the, the reasons to have it. You know, it appeals to the seafarers, many of whom are millennials. Some are older, but that these people on our ships, and I'm sure it's true of all of us here, really care about what's going on in the environment, and they want to do. We can motivate them to do it not just to save HQ some money, uh, although that's a good good goal, but to be doing something good. So, but if they and right now the steps are mostly about efficiency, as you said, you go. But in, in time, it'll be about new technologies that allow you ship to 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 eliminate or reduce their carbon emissions. And it's important to get all of our employees involved. And I think they like seeing the companies they work for care about this, not just from, from saving money, but for actually being devoted to the principles.
0: We had a comment earlier that uh, the charters have to be part of the, the, the game to to be successful in, in reducing uh, emissions uh, in generally carbon in particular. Paul, uh, you all are famous for having those close dialogue with, with charters. Uh, what are your customers telling you about the, their their plans to or their ambitions about carbon uh, emissions reductions?
1: Well, they don't, they don't go to any specific um, actions that should be taken. Um, they do express their overall concern. Um, and we tell them, yes, we understand your overall concerns, but it's not for us as the owners who should directly take any action beyond the normal procedures that you should be taking anyway as far as uh, uh, safety and environmental matters are concerned. Um, We emphasize that we know that uh, decarbonation (coughs) is going to happen one day and we will be participating in that along with other companies. But that's got to go through the IMO. That's what we're there for. It's not for us to start doing things individually, inventing our own rules. Uh, Rules have to be set by the I am just I am as I have been in the past, uh, on other matters. Um, w- what concerns me a little bit about what I've heard today um, is the um, presence of banks taking some kind of mm. role a- a- in this uh, activity, um, and I'm wondering where on earth do they come into it. It's becoming slightly worrying that for a, an industry which is pretty well over regulated anyway and has high uh, corporate governance requirements, you talk to a banker and he's um, depressed with uh, all the rules he has to follow. And there they are now talking about adopting a whole bunch of new rules that they are going to impose and they are going to monitor. They're expecting. Um, Shipping companies to have data available in order that they can monitor um, exactly what's happening with regards to decarbonation and what and what contribution they are making. Um, that, to me, is, 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 is totally unacceptable. Um, you know, the rules should be made by IMO, and we, as as companies, should follow those rules. And we don't have to go beyond those IMO. Rules. Um, uh,
0: Paul, I, I think maybe put the, let me put this in a little different light uh, yeah. about the Poseidon principles. The European Central Bank has declared that climate change is a systemic risk for banks, mm-hmm. and banks are responding to that ruling and that they have to actively manage risk. For some reason, shipping is perceived as a risk factor in that regard, and, and so they're responding uh, to the rules. Uh, uh, and, and I think it's, it's admirable that they're taking that initiative. What is surprising when I hear you uh, describing your conversations with your charters, it doesn't sound to me like they're t- taking a proactive stance uh, in that regard. Uh, sure. And maybe others would care to comment on that. As uh, yeah,
2: but w- w- why should they?
3: Why
2: Charter. Should I mean, charters aren't going to step up. They never have. Everyone says, "Oh, the charters should pay for this. The charters should pay for that. The charters pay for the ship that you present with them. Present to them." Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm.
0: I mean, I think one of the problems we all have in I mean, preparing to talk about decarbonization is we read all these announcements by Shell and ExxonMobil and others uh, describing their initiatives to, to be part of the greening the planet. Are you saying those conversations don't get down to the chartering level?
3: Could that be, possibly be an explanation? I think they will. Yeah. You know, I think it's fair to say that, that it's not been a big part of what we're hearing from our counterparties yet. But when you look at some of the policies that have been put in place by the oil majors, changing their incentives of compensation to to reward or not reward people for how they're, they're paying attention to carbon emissions and other ESG factors, it's only, it's just an opinion ball, well not a fact, but it's only a matter of time before they do. So I think that maybe I, I understand the visceral reaction to the idea of rules, and I understand that rules should be coming from, from regulators, uh, but banks, you know. We all love the banks, but they're kind of like school teachers, right? They, that's just in their cultural nature to give us some rules, right? So whereas the stock market is not going to give us any rules, it's just going to either invest or not invest without, without giving you any clue what they're going to do. I mean, heck, you just read today in the Financial Times there's a 1,000 institutions that won't even touch a fossil fuel or fossil fuel-related uh, 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 issuer. That's not a rule. That's just not showing up. So, so I think it's going to be it is increasingly more a reality of access to capital, among other things that, that, that and, and our customers will, so capital providers will care, banks or investors, customers may not care that much yet, but they will. I think it's just, we have to be aware of this trend.
4: Let's be honest, I mean, sorry, but uh, I have to disagree slightly with Paul, because I don't really care about IMO rules if they don't go far or fast enough. Because if I can save a buck in the company, and at the same time, do something good for the planet, why wouldn't I? Mm -hmm. I was talking about waste, so basically saving energy, I don't need a rule to tell me that. These are available possibilities that we can do, we can implement, whether the charter agrees with them or not, whether he sees an incentive, maybe we first need to talk to them and show them what could potentially be done. Maybe he's not aware of it. So economics Mm -hmm. will play first, but in this case, economics goes in the same direction as the reduction of CO2.
0: Let's talk a little bit more about uh, economics, or at least uh, charter rates. Uh, the, uh, uh, the, the crude tanker market's been hit by some pretty uh, big blows recently. Uh, we had, a, after a after panel last year, the rates did uh, pretty well. Um, so I, I regard this as a leading indicator of an improving market, certainly. Uh, but shortly after that, OPEC cut production by 2 million barrels a day. And amazingly, the crude tanker fleet grew by about 5% per day. But rates really are not that bad uh, right now. They're a little bit better than they were at this, this year, last year at this time, I think. So, Hugo,
4: what's going on? I think what's going on is, uh, was a little bit uh, predictable, i.e. Uh, the fourth quarter of last year and the first quarter of this year were relatively positive. Then we knew that we had a number of ships hitting the market in the first part, so in the first half of the year. So that put pressure on the rates. At the same time, the refineries went on their turnaround preparation for IMO 2020 earlier than they would do in, an, in another year. The number of refineries that, that shut down to do that were more than in another year because normally they are on a on sort of bi uh, maintenance program. Um, and now we are sitting ahead of the winter. We have better rates than last year, and that's simply because those refineries came back um, the U.S. exports are going up, as we've seen, and as we have predicted. And we believe that those two factors will continue to play. And in addition to that, you will have a, a temporary reduction of the fleet, which should give a very positive Q4. And the reduction of the fleet is coming from the fact that a number of ships, especially in the VLCC uh, part of the, the tanker segment, are going to retrofit the uh, But it's not an insignificant number. I mean. Uh, In December alone, we're talking about four percent of the fleet uh, being in the yard. Mm. So, if four percent reduction in the supply uh, cannot do something uh, extraordinary to the rates. Then I wonder what can do it. Mm. Mm. Uh, I believe it will.
0: Paul uh, Hugo tells us that uh, the the fourth quarter is going to set the stage for uh, is going to set the stage. What do you think about
1: 2020? Well, I I, I think Hugo is absolutely right. we we saw uh, in quarter two our spot rates taking off quite um, almost unexpectedly. Um, The rates we were earning by our spot vessels, and and bear in mind that um, we put about 80% of our vessels on time charter and only have about 15 or 20 vessels uh, operating in the spot um, area. Uh, But those vessels in spot... Had an incredible increase, 30% increase year on year against the same ships earning um, a year ago. Um, a 30% increase. And so we looked into it and said, well, well this is something we should learn how it, how it happened and, and, and repeat it. And it was basically long haul voyages. We were picking up, which, is, which was uh, uh, different from our unusual, usual um, kind of activity, time charters. Um, We are finding that there are a lot of long haul vessels uh, emanating from uh, various uh, places in the the planet, but especially from the the US and going east. So I think that's going to happen in a bigger way uh, when we get into 2020. Um, We um, might still be stuck, to a certain extent, with our time charters. As soon as those time charters come off, we're going to take advantage those uh, uh, uh,
0: potential spot wages. Jeff, we've got a positive outlook for the market, uh, as as, uh, we hear in the short term, as a result of a a number of exceptional factors, in the longer term, as a result of that slower growth in the fleet and and maybe tailing off in, in U.S. oil production. Some people have, some owners put scrubbers on their ships and expect to earn a premium, Uh, as a result of putting scrubbers on ship. Can you give us an estimate of what you might expect from a VL with a scrubber on it than without?
3: Well, look, I think first of all, uh, the strategy of our company is to prepare ourselves for the upcoming cycle that that Hugo and and Paul just talked about, that's irrespective of any capex on scrubbers. And we think we have a a good environment coming uh, regardless. And uh, We we all have ships together, in many cases, Hugo and I, TI pool, there'll be scrub ships, non-scrub ships. We, we think the outlook for, for all of those vessels is really robust. Um, mm-hmm. the, the, the scrubber system is pure CapEx. You know, so the, the spread curve is moving all over the place. You heard the previous panel someone say quite correctly that high sulfur fuel oil is, is, is quite expensive now because uh, the beginning of preparations for IMO 2020, so that tends to narrow the curve. You know, but it, it was narrowed, then it widened, and it's narrowed again. It doesn't matter. Any of the, any of the spreads that, that, uh, that materialize will be sufficient to make a, a, our scrubber capex payback. So I'm not going to give you an exact number, but we're comfortable that's between a nine-month and two-year payback. And if we're wrong and it's three years, that's still a decent capex. It's, but it's not a big. It's just capex. It's just an additional um, expenditure to get a little more return.
0: All right, well, I got to do Randy one better. Uh, He had uh, those small product tankers. We got great big crew tankers. So I'm going to give you each $100 million uh, and ask you what you're going to do with it. uh, We heard about paying off debt. We heard about putting more scrubbers on. We heard about buying ships. Where are you going to put the money? You've got about 15 seconds each. Hugo, you're up first.
4: So if you give me the money, I suppose it's free money because... Uh, when it comes to not free money, I no, think no, I have no. plenty. It's, it's
0: Nicholas gives a, every, every moderator $100 billion and our uh, Exactly. So it's free
4: money. So I think that I, I might take a punt and buy a dual fuel LNG vessel because it's free.
3: The problem with those vessels today is that it comes at a premium. Mm.
0: That's interesting. Jeff, what are you going to do with it?
3: Uh, well, we tie our own hands in this regard. You know, what we say about capital allocation is you renew your fleet and, and provide growth at the bottom of the cycle up to self-imposed or market-imposed leverage limits. And we did that with $600 million spent on vessels and $50 million uh, allocated for scrubbers. If we have $100 million more, it's now time for capital allocation to deleveraging and to returning cash to shareholders.
2: Bob, uh, I'm guessing you're going to buy a few 18-year-old VLCCs. Not quite that old, but close. Um, 25, if, yeah. what <laughs> if what everyone says is true and the financing won't be available, that means multiples are compressed and valuations are, are better for the buyer and return on equity is going to be superior with lower risk. And if that's what happens to all the tankers, then I would continue to buy them. And so far it's worked out, you know, okay. Paul, you've
0: got $100 million bucks. What are you going to do with it?
1: Well, two years ago, I said that we were going to expand into uh, LNG and that uh, within a year or two we're going to have six LNG carriers. Um, that didn't happen.
3: <laughs> so this time <laughs> we've got the money for
1: you know, put a deposit on, on uh, three or four new LNG carriers, that's the direction we're going
4: in. Because the other book is not big enough.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Gentlemen, thank you very much. We've come to the end of our time. We we burned the house down a moment ago. Thank you so much for a great (laughs) job.